Pope Francis keeps a collection of icons and holy cards on his desk in his private apartment at the Vatican. An icon of Mary, a statue of St. Joseph holding the baby Jesus, and another slightly more unusual statue. He's in a sort of a, a green robe and he's got this mantle over his shoulders. It's yellow and he's sort of sleeping on a rolled up rucksack, it almost looks like. It's a statue of St. Joseph, fast asleep. This is Alan Holdren, EWTN's Rome Bureau Chief. I actually got one in my, my office. I've got one right in front of me here at the EWTN Vatican Bureau. It was given to me by a friend, and uh, it's, it's actually not a, a European devotion. No one really sort of knew about it until the Pope put it on the map, I guess, in 2015. It's more of a, a South American devotion. The Pope first spoke about the image during a trip to the Philippines in 2015. He mentioned that he had this devotion to the sleeping St. Joseph. He had a statue that uh, he had uh, taken with him from uh, Buenos Aires uh, when he came to Rome when he was elected. He had it sent uh, to be in his personal apartment here in Rome. So uh, we, you know, we know that he's had it for the, the time that he's been here, but we also know that he had it long before in the time that he was in Buenos Aires. The Pope's devotion to St. Joseph is pretty well known. Yeah, he's such a powerful intercessor, is what the Pope himself has said. And so we know that he prays often for the intercession of St. Joseph in his own work, in his life, and has been doing so since the time he was young. When he found his vocation uh, to the priesthood, when he realized that he was called to be a priest, he was at, he was at the parish of St. Joseph. And uh, even this year, he's uh, called for a year of St. Joseph. When he was elected to the papacy, he, uh, he took up the, the reins uh, on the 19th of March, which is the Feast of St. Joseph. It's been a mainstay throughout his pontificate, and he often speaks about his great love and admiration for St. Joseph. Allen said the Pope's devotion to the image of a sleeping St. Joseph carries a special significance. The statue on the Pope's desk has many papers underneath it, folded in half, with prayer intentions written on them. And when they speak about Pope uh, John the 23rd often said that, well, he said himself that before going to sleep, he would say, uh, Lord, it's your church. Now I'm going to bed. It's the same sort of thing, I think, for Pope Francis and St. Joseph is that he entrusts the St. Joseph so many things. It's such a beautiful image of, uh, you know, St. Joseph, who in his dreams, God would reveal certain things to him. He would have visions that he would then act upon when he, when he would wake up. And so that's something that Pope Francis has spoken about, too, in reference to this image, is that we not only have to, to dream and to ask God for things, but then we have to, when we have the call to do something, we wake up and we do it. This week on the podcast, we're talking about sleep. In our first segment, our producer, Kate Oliveira, talks with a theologian about the role of sleep and dreams in the life of St. Joseph and for other dreamers throughout Scripture. Then we'll hear from a Catholic author and father about his own evolving relationship with sleep. And a Catholic psychologist weighs in on what it might mean when we have trouble with sleep. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that normally we would hope doesn't put you to sleep. I'm your host, Joda McKeown. Daniel Campbell leads the lay division at St. John Vianney Theological Seminary here in Denver. He keeps a statue of a sleeping St. Joseph in his home. It's interesting because he's just laying there. 
<laughs> and you don't usually see statues of people just laying asleep. The visual of a sleeping St. Joseph may be unusual, but sleep and dreams actually play a major role in St. Joseph's story, as dreams are the way that God gives him guidance. As a part of his great role in salvation history and the unique responsibilities that he has, he's given particular help with revelations from God through this source of the angel. Typically thought to be the Archangel Gabriel, who also appeared to Mary at the Annunciation. You see it in Matthew chapter 1. He's really struggling to understand what's happening here with Mary. You know, his virginal pregnant wife is not exactly what he was expecting to be happening. Uh, And so in that respect, he's really struggling. He can't quite wrap his mind around it. And he's trying his best to figure out what to do. Joseph goes to sleep. And then... Joseph is told in a dream to bring Mary into his home and not to divorce her quietly as he was thinking. He's told in a dream to flee to Egypt in the middle of the night to escape Herod. He's told in a dream when to come back to Israel. That, of course, is not to say that every single dream somebody has comes from God. In most cases, they're just purely natural realities. But nonetheless, for St. Joseph, the cause of his dreams was God. So for him, it's really an interesting thing where he gets a number of these revelations from God about how to handle his very unique situation in salvation history, how to take care of Mary and the baby Jesus in particular. St. Joseph isn't the only person in the Bible known to have dreams. In the Old Testament, there's Jacob's dream about a ladder connecting heaven and earth. In the book of Genesis, Joseph has a dream about stalks of grain and the stars and the moon, communicating his future as a ruler of Egypt. There are also many dreams and nightmares detailed in the books of the prophets. Things like Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked pagan king, is having various dreams about statues and things of that sort and signifying God's providential rule over the world and these different kingdoms that are going to be rising up over the years to oppress the Jews, but how one day God's kingdom is going to definitively and finally um, inaugurate its rule in this world. And in the New Testament, the Magi in the Nativity story are warned in a dream about Herod's true intentions for the Christ child. And Pontius Pilate's wife is recorded as having a nightmare, and she warns her husband not to have anything to do with the condemnation of Christ. The church doesn't have much to say about dreams in terms of official teachings. You can generally find more reflections about dreams in the writings of theologians over the centuries, like St. Thomas Aquinas, who writes that our dreams are often affected by our thoughts throughout the day or by the physical disposition of our bodies. You know, if you just had a really terrible um, injury and you really hurt your arm, it's very possible that you're probably going to dream about your hurt arm because that's the physical state your body's in. Or if you fall asleep in a room that's really hot or really cold, you could dream of being really hot or really cold. And that is the overwhelming majority of the dreams, is that they're just natural realities that are continuing from our days into our sleep. Thomas Aquinas does write that dreams can sometimes have a preternatural aspect. Which is angels and or demons, and then you can have dreams that are directly from God. The dreams you read about in the Bible tend to be dreams coming from that spiritual reality. You don't really see a lot of dreams in Scripture where people are talking about just, hey, I was thinking about this during the day, so I dreamed about it last night. Daniel says pretty much all of our dreams today 
do not have that spiritual reality. On one level, when you see the saints talking about dreams, they talk about you kind of just ignore them because they're just kind of things that naturally happen. And a lot of people don't even remember any dreams they have at any point. Um, I can't remember the last time I actually remembered a dream, to be honest with you. It's been a very long time. And Catholics should not be seeking out dreams. So there is a, a very clear warning in Scripture in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that you're not allowed to solicit dreams. This was something, for example, that a lot of the pagan religions of antiquity practiced. You know, certain rituals and actions to try and determine the future, trying to, you know, you got your crystal ball and you're trying to determine what is going to come in the future type stuff just through the course of dreams. As far as dream interpretation goes, it's probably best to avoid it altogether, unless you believe your dreams could be coming from God. Certainly, if there was something that we thought with our dreams was perhaps of God, then would perhaps be prudent to you know, bring it up with a good spiritual director to just kind of work through, is this something that's real, or is this something that's just an illusion of fantasy in a dream because it's a whole hot room or a cold room or you know whatever it is. But if the stories of dreams in the Bible are any indication, if God is going to try to tell us something through a dream, he'll make it pretty straightforward. You'll see Nebuchadnezzar, for example, the wicked pagan king, is having these dreams that he doesn't make sense. So what happens? God sends the prophet Daniel to interpret his dreams. So insofar as a dream does come from God, what you see in Scripture is generally the person isn't just trying to sit there trying to figure out what in the world is going on, and they just think really, really hard and figure it out. That's why good spiritual direction is so helpful, because insofar as there is a dream from God, we can be confident he will certainly give us the aid we need to figure out what's going on with it. You know, dreams are extraordinary things, just like, you know, walking on water or levitating is extraordinary. That sometimes happens to some of the saints. But that doesn't mean it happens to all the saints, or even the majority of saints, or even a lot of the saints. What's most important is, of course, just living a life of grace and responding to God's will in humble prayer, the sacraments, the Mass. In honor of the Year of St. Joseph, the lay division of St. John Vianney Seminary in Denver is offering a six-week virtual class in July, all about St. Joseph. Check out our show notes for more information. We'll be right back, right after this. Hi guys, Kate here. And Jonah. Do you ever think to yourself, man, I love the stories I hear every week on CNA Newsroom, but sometimes I wish I knew more about what's happening in the church on a daily basis. It's okay if you've thought that. You won't hurt our feelings. Well, Catholic News Agency now offers a daily audio news update made especially for your smart speaker. It's called Catholic News, and it's available right now on Amazon Alexa and Google Home. You can listen every day on your favorite podcast app, too, if that's how you roll. Okay, here's how it works. On Google Home, all you have to do is walk up to your speaker and say, Hey Google, play Catholic News. Here's the latest news. If you have an Alexa, it's pretty much the same. Just say, Alexa, open Catholic News. Welcome back to the latest news from Catholic News Agency. You can also search for Catholic News in the Alexa Skills Store, Enable the skill on your app, and then ask Alexa to play your flash briefing. Check out our show notes for more information. And now, back to the episode.
Gary Jansen went years thinking his relationship with sleep was perfectly normal. I think when you're in your 20s and 30s, you probably have a lot more energy. So in terms of like sleep, you know, maybe I was getting six or seven hours. Yeah, I don't necessarily remember, but I do remember not feeling, obviously feeling a lot more energetic. But he says something changed when he hit his 40s. And it could be just after I had kids and our, our first son, Eddie, just did not sleep. So he really threw a lot of things off. And I think it was in my 40s when I started to have problems with sleep. So insomnia, um, but also like waking up in the middle of the night, not being able to get back to sleep. And so that can be, that I was a, that was a huge drag. When I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning, one, I would think a very horror movie in the world where people woke up at three o'clock in the morning and that there was some kind of like demon or devil inside my house. Spoiler alert, there were no demons. And then you'd start to twist in your mind. All of a sudden, it's almost as if you had a movie projector in your head and it starts to flicker, right? And it starts to kick in. And then all of a sudden, you've you got a full-blown movie that's going on. And, you know, we create narratives in our heads all throughout the day. And you could deal with them when you're awake. But when you're you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning, when all of a sudden that movie of your life or your responsibilities or the things you haven't done or any kind of guilt, all of a sudden starts projecting these images onto the screen of your mind. And it's... It's one of those movies that keeps you up <laughs> and it continues to keep you up until maybe you get exhausted and maybe like at four or five o'clock you fall back asleep and then you have to get up an hour or an hour and a half later. Gary was exhausted and his nightly battle with sleep began to seep into other parts of his life. His relationships. Because I really just felt like, you know, this is something I need to be able to work at, work through. I have responsibilities. I got a family. I have work. I can't let those people down. So whatever I'm feeling inside, I just kind of have to move through it. But there was this pervading sense of just depression. And, you know, and looking back, I guess I was being dishonest to the people around me. And even his Catholic faith. I started questioning my spirituality. I started questioning my relationship with God. I would feel like God had abandoned me because all I want to do is I want to go to sleep, right? And, and you know, why can't you help me? God, I'm praying for you to help me to go to sleep. And, you're not letting me. Um, I just, I need you. And I did feel there were definitely moments when I felt abandoned during those moments of or those nights of insomnia. But then I got so exhausted one night. I just, I fell asleep at like 10 o'clock. I woke up at six. And when I woke up the next morning, I went, wow, I feel really good. Wait, I mean, I haven't felt like this in a long time. Uh, what could it be? I mean, you know, did I, the, what the mushrooms I had last night with my dinner, that somehow like, you know, changed my chemistry? Never really like thinking that, you know, no, you dummy. It's the fact that you actually got a good night's sleep for a long time, you know, for the first time in a long time. Eventually, I got another good night's sleep and another good night's sleep and I started feeling better. And I started to realize, well, wait a minute, maybe sleep is really, it's related to these feelings of depression, to this dark night of the soul that I was having. Gary was definitely onto something. Mirabel Laguna is a licensed professional counselor and president of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. She said sleep is one factor she considers when she screens new patients. We always go over bodily function, how people are eating, how people are exercising, how is their general physical health. One of those important things is how people are sleeping. 
Mirabel said trouble falling asleep could be a sign of anxiety. Of course, we want to make sure we rule out a medical cause first, but if there is no identifiable medical cause, there's probably anxiety um, in that person. Someone who wakes up frequently throughout the night may have depression or a depressive disorder. So if someone's having frequent nightmares and is unable to kind of accomplish that Oregon sleep, which is where we have you know, our deepest sleep and are able to rest, then that person perhaps has something called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or another stress or trauma-related disorder. And so not only is sleep important in terms of how long you're sleeping and how quickly you're falling asleep, but also the quality of your sleep. Okay, but before you're tempted to self-diagnose yourself with anxiety or depression, hold off. Mirabel said sleep troubles don't always point to a psychological issue. She suggests taking a look at something she calls sleep hygiene. Like, are you watching TV or scrolling through Instagram on your phone in the hour before you go to bed? The blue light from those devices could be overactivating your brain. Are you drinking caffeine too late in the day? Are you exercising? Praying? Are you journaling or doing something similar to help you process your day? If your sleep hygiene is immaculate but you're still struggling, Mirabel recommends praying with the day's mass readings before bed or praying the rosary. Because of the rote um, nature of the rosary and the repetition involved in that, that does help them fall asleep. Because what it does, it helps kind of normalize or bring down that stress response. And then the simplest um, technique that I give clients is deep breathing. And so this would be um, kind of breathing slowly into your diaphragm and exhaling slowly into your diaphragm. And then kind of as you do that, um, then naturally you start feeling pretty tired and can fall asleep. That has been very effective for some clients. But if you do wake up at three o'clock in the morning, you know, I've tried and it's probably the best thing that you can do is to try and just not even fight going back to sleep. Just allow yourself to not panic, (laughs) to not worry about it, and you will get back to sleep. This is Gary again. He's become somewhat of a sleep evangelist since his struggles a few years ago. And look, I'm not a doctor, so I can't say exactly what uh, what happened, but I can I can say there's a correlation. When I started to get more sleep, I started to feel better, and I started. And when you feel better, you just you act better, you treat people better, you are more productive, you can be kinder, you can get things done, you can help other people better. When you're grumpy, when you're overtired. Uh, you're just not you're just not at the best that God wants you to be. And there's definitely a sense of machismo about sleep. Right? There's a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, I got by like five hours of sleep. I don't need a lot of sleep. I can get a lot done without it. And and you wonder, could they be getting a lot more done, having a better time if they were actually getting the amount of sleep that doctors say that you're supposed to get? You know, because When you're sleeping, your body is like, it's repairing and renewing itself. Research has shown that getting somewhere between seven and nine hours of sleep each night helps clear out a plaque that builds up in the brain that can lead to Alzheimer's. It strengthens your immune system, right? 
and it balances your hormones. Sleep is also a chance for your brain to process short-term memories, turning them into long-term memories. Mirabelle says that the stress of the past year and the pandemic has really affected people's sleep, and not for the better. I think that the pandemic has highlighted so many things for people and things that have at times been swept under the rug because we had these easy coping skills, right? We could get up and go to the photo movie if we were having a bad day. We could easily um, call a friend and you know, get together with, with him or her if we were having a bad day. And I think with all of those easy coping skills being limited, and again, not that those are objectively bad, but they, um, if we do them too much, they sort of do keep us from having insight into greater difficulties in our life. And when those were removed from one day to the next, or maybe in a matter of a week, all of a sudden we were left with having to face our problems. And that has been very difficult for people. We are certainly in the middle of a mental health pandemic, and I just anticipate that it will have exponential um, effects on our society. Because what we're experiencing right now is what I call a collective trauma. And some examples of a collective trauma would be like 9-11 or World War II. However, this current pandemic has affected every single person across the world. Her practice has five Catholic therapists and a waiting list of more than 100 people. And it's been like that since probably January. It's definitely bringing to the surface and to light not only people's difficulties, but also the importance of mental health and the importance of you know, managing things together, social connectedness, and, and all those things. Mirabel said Catholics are well-equipped to process the trauma of the last year and a half. As Catholics, we've been training for a collective trauma our entire lives. And that's because uh, witnessing the crucifixion is also, in on a natural level, a collective trauma. And so, I mean, what beauty that we have in our church that we can pull from those resources where we all come together and um, venerate the cross. And the fact that we can do that together really speaks to our resiliency as a community and as a faith. And that we not only rely on people that we see to our left and to our right at Mass, but we also rely on the faith. And the fact that we can pull from those people who have gone before us, right, and the collective wisdom of the Church I think as believers makes us especially resilient. You can read more about Gary and his experience with sleep in his book Microshifts, which was published in 2019. Check out our show notes for more information. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. So for our last segment, we have something kind of special for you. You know those apps you can get for your phone that have sleep stories on them? You know, basically like bedtime stories for grown-ups? Well, we created a sleep story of our own, a Catholic sleep story. What we're about to play is a five-minute sample of our sleep story. To hear the entire thing, just go to our podcast feed. We've posted the full sleep story there as a bonus episode. 
But first, I'm going to go ahead and do the credits. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host, Jonah McKeown. I produce and edit this show with the help of our executive producer, Kate Oliveira. Special thanks this week to Alan Holdren, Daniel Campbell, Gary Jansen, and Mirabelle Laguna. And now, please enjoy the classic short story, The Blue Cross by G.K. Chesterton. Between the silver ribbon of morning and the green glittering ribbon of sea, the boat touched Harwich and let loose a swarm of folk like flies, among whom the man we must follow was by no means conspicuous, nor wished to be. There was nothing notable about him, except a slight contrast between the holiday gaiety of his clothes and the official gravity of his face. His clothes included a slight pale gray jacket, a white waistcoat, and a silver straw hat with a gray-blue ribbon. His lean face was dark by contrast and ended in a curt black beard that looked Spanish and suggested an Elizabethan ruff. He was smoking a cigarette with the seriousness of an idler. There was nothing about him to indicate the fact that the gray jacket covered a loaded revolver, that the white waistcoat covered a police card, or that the straw hat covered one of the most powerful intellects in Europe. For this was Valentin himself, the head of the Paris police and the most famous investigator of the world, and he was coming from Brussels to London to make the greatest arrest of the century. Flambeau was in England. The police of three countries had tracked the great criminal at last from Ghent to Brussels, from Brussels to the Hook of Holland, and it was conjectured that he would take some advantage of the unfamiliarity and confusion of the Eucharistic Congress, then taking place in London. Probably he would travel as some minor clerk or secretary connected with it. But, of course, Valentin could not be certain. No one could be certain about Flambeau. It is many years now since this colossus of crime suddenly ceased keeping the world in a turmoil. And when he ceased, as they said after the death of Roland, there was a great quiet upon the earth. But in his best days, and I mean of course his worst, Flambeau was a figure as statuesque and as international as the Kaiser. Almost every morning the daily paper announced that he had escaped the consequences of one extraordinary crime by committing another. He was a Gascon of gigantic stature and bodily daring. The wildest tales were told of his outbursts of athletic humor, how he turned the juge destruction upside down and stood him on his head to clear his mind how he ran down the Rue de Rivoli with a policeman under each arm. It is due to him to say that his fantastic physical strength was generally employed in such bloodless though undignified scenes. His real crimes are chiefly those of ingenious and wholesale robbery. But each of his thefts was almost a new sin and would make a story by itself. It was he who ran the great Tyrolean Dairy Company in London, with no dairies, no cows, no carts, no milk, but with some thousand subscribers. These he served by the simple operation of moving the little milk cans outside people's doors to the doors of his own customers. It was he who had kept up an unaccountable and close correspondence with a young lady whose whole letter bag was intercepted by the extraordinary trick of photographing his messages infinitesimally small upon the slides of a microscope. A sweeping simplicity, however, marked many of his experiments. 
It is said that he once repainted all the numbers in a street in the dead of night, merely to divert one traveler into a trap. It is quite certain that he invented a portable pillar box, which he put up at corners in quiet suburbs on the chance of strangers dropping postal orders into it. Lastly, he was known to be a startling acrobat. Despite his huge figure, he could leap like a grasshopper and melt into the treetops like a monkey. Hence, the great Valentine, when he set out to find Flambeau, was perfectly aware that his adventures would not end when he found him. But how was he going to find him? On this, the great Valentine's ideas were still in the process of settlement. There was one thing which Flambeau, with all his dexterity of disguise, could not cover, and that was his singular height. If Valentine's quick eye had caught a tall apple woman, a tall grenadier, or even a tolerably tall duchess, he might have arrested them on the spot. But all along his train there was nobody that could be a disguised flambeau, any more than a cat could be a disguised giraffe. About the people on the boat he had already satisfied himself, and the people picked up at Harwich, or on the journey, limited themselves with certainty to six. There was a short railway official travelling up to the terminus, three fairly short market gardeners picked up at two stations afterwards, one very short widow lady going from a small Essex town, and a very short Roman Catholic priest going up from a small Essex village. When it came to the last case, Valentine gave it up and almost laughed. The little priest was so much the essence of those eastern flats. He had a face as round and as dull as a Norfolk dumpling. He had eyes as empty as the North Sea. He had several brown paper parcels, which he was quite incapable of collecting. The Eucharistic Congress had doubtless sucked out of their local stagnation many such creatures, blind and helpless like moles disinterred. Valentine was a skeptic in the severe style of France, and could have no love for priests.